Hey church, just want to give you a quick shout out and introduce our guest speaker for this morning. Of course, I'm on a sabbatical right now. You probably see me floating around town. You probably see me working in the front yard at the chapter house. That's the other charity uh, that I run here in Jackson. I don't get a sabbatical from them. So don't, don't be bashful. If you see me out there working in the yard, wave at me, say, hey, uh, I'm just taking a break from the, the responsibilities of West Winds. But of course, this is my church. This is my home. And I can't wait to, to get back to you in, in just a few short weeks. Anyway, today you're going to hear from, from Nathan Oates. And I love Nathan. We've done a, a couple of projects together. We've been in a couple of cohorts together. He's one of the, the founding members of the Chapter House, one of the early Fasarians. But, but the thing that you might uh, be most interested in about Nathan is not just that he's a great scholar of, of Benedictine spirituality or that he has a total fresh approach, I think, to, to liturgy and community. All those things are fantastic. But he almost hired me. Like when I was thinking about my next move, you know, way back in 2004, and, and I was praying and seeking in the face of God about what I should do next. It really came down to, to, to three options. There was a church in San Francisco that I was praying about. There was West Winds that I was praying about that I didn't really know of and I couldn't really find on a map. Um, and then there was this church in Northern California that was going to be a church plant. And, and Nathan was the pastor of the church. And we were talking and, and he was going to hire me to be his worship leader. So how different would my life have been if I moved to Northern California and kept playing guitar than if if I came here to Jackson, Michigan, and, and really doubled down on, on learning how to preach the gospel. So I have this lifelong uh, debt to Nathan for being a huge part of God's discerning process in, in me. And, and he's a big part of my story about how we got to West Winds. And of course, we've stayed in touch ever since and become great friends. So I think you're really going to enjoy what he has to say. And God bless you. Can't wait to see you soon, church. Good morning, West Winds. My name is Nathan Oates. I pastor Emmaus Church Community in Northern California, where it is a beautiful day. Spring has sprung. There are blossoms everywhere, including the oak trees. The oak trees are blossoming, which means there's a lot of pollen in the air. And those of us with allergies are struggling today. I hope you're having a beautiful day in Jackson. And it's a pleasure and a joy and a privilege to bring the word to you this morning. I want to share with you a short sermon which I believe is based, is a sermon on the best story in the Bible. And I'm, I'm serious about that. I know that might sound like a subjective statement, but I challenge you to find a more important story, a more significant story, a more pivotal story, a more worldview altering story, a more holistically transformational story in all of scripture. There are lots of reasons this story is the best story in the Bible, but here's the most important one. It is a journey story. It is a story that captures in a single day in a 14 mile journey, the, the, the process of moving from brokenness to wholeness. This story, which Luke records at the end of his gospel, Luke's account of the life and teachings of Jesus, it is the story of humanity's relationship with God, condensed into a single day. This story, it's sometimes called The Road to Emmaus, is essentially the story of holistic transformation. How does transformation work? Well, it looks like the road to Emmaus. How does conversion and healing and real spiritual change happen? 
Well, it, it happens like the road to Emmaus. This story has captivated me for almost 20 years. It became a narrative, like a narrative structure, not just for my life, but for the community that I lead. And I bet that you'll be able to find yourself somewhere in this story as well, somewhere along this 14-mile journey to Emmaus. And, and that could be so helpful for you. And my hope would be that it would be incredibly helpful for you, that, that the clarity that comes in being able to recognize where you are on a journey, where you are on the map, what has come, what is, what is just behind you, what is coming before you, that this could be uh, the clarity that's so valuable, that could be like gold for you. So let me read this story to you. This is out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That same day is a reference to the day of the resurrection. This is taking place on the very first Easter Sunday morning, though very few recognize what has happened yet. And two of them refer to two disciples of Jesus. They're not any of the apostles, the 12, but they're followers of Christ who have apparently been walking with Jesus for some time. But now they're going away from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us uh, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. 
And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let me point out three very basic but totally life-changing truths that this story reveals. Let me kind of paint the overall arc of this story. Here's the first, the first truth. God is with people. God is with us. Notice how Jesus is with the travelers before they even recognize the reality of his presence. Uh, Notice how um, this is an an emerging recognition that is very slow at the beginning and then then explodes with clarity at a later point in the story. Somehow in the early years of my learning to follow Jesus, I picked up this false idea that Jesus people bring Jesus to other people who don't yet know Jesus. Somehow I picked up this incorrect idea that God is with some people. And the reason that we, we who knew Jesus, would go to other countries to build homes or to do mission trips. So the reason we would go to the jail and visit those in prison, or we'd go to the hospital and visit those there, or the reason we'd cross the street and talk to our neighbors was to bring Jesus to these places where he was not, was to introduce Jesus, was to bring Jesus to these people uh, with whom he was not. But that is simply not an idea that we can support from scripture. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And more specifically, God is with everyone. The real question is not, is God with me? The real question is not, is God with my neighbor? The real question is, do I recognize that it is God here with me? Do I recognize that it is God with, do I, it's a question of recognition. It's not a question of reality. It's a question of recognition. According to the Bible, God is always with me. But I didn't recognize and I certainly didn't embrace his presence until I was a teenager. Our job, in other words, is not to bring God to Jackson. God's already there. It's probably one of his favorite hangouts. But our job is to help people in and around Jackson to recognize him and then to inspire them to embrace Jesus as the Lord of their life. How do we do that? Well, by, by shadowing God, as Dave likes to say, by coming alongside them in their journeys, by joining them in their stories. So the first basic truth that I see in this story is this. God is with people. God is already with people. Here's the second truth. He is with people in their stories, in their stories. What's the first thing that Jesus says to these travelers on the road to Emmaus? He asks them a question. What are you talking about? What's the second thing Jesus says to the travelers on the road to Emmaus? Essentially, tell me more about what it is that you're talking about. Notice how these travelers are busy. They're on their way somewhere. They're preoccupied emotionally but they stop, why? To tell their story to a fellow traveler who is sincerely willing to listen. Jesus joins the travelers on their journey. Luke writes in verse 15, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. The original language that Luke uses here suggests that Jesus catches up to the travelers, then slows down his pace to match theirs so 
so that he can join them and walk along with them in, in their journey. Too often, I think we believe this field of dreams idea that if we build it, they will come, right? And we expect people to just come into our businesses, just come into our events, just come to our church, just come into our stories. It's about our stories. That usually doesn't happen. Certainly not what Jesus did. It doesn't appear to be what Jesus expects his followers to expect people to do. Jesus went to people and joined in their stories. He joined their lives, right? The, the early Christians joined people in their stories. In fact, the only reason we know God at all is because God has come and joined our story. He has, ultimately it's his story, but he has come to where we are. He has come to make himself known in a way that we can understand by joining into our experience. So first two basic truths revealed in this story, God is with people. Secondly, he's with people in their stories, or let's include ourselves in this. God is with us. He is with us in our stories. And then finally this, of brokenness. God is with us in our stories of brokenness. It's relatively easy for me to believe that God is with me in my triumph. It's almost like I feel his strength. It's relatively easy for me to believe that God is with me in my obedience. Right? It's kind of challenging for me to believe that he's with me in my brokenness. That's in fact the very time it is the most challenging for me to believe that he's with me in my failure, that, he, that he's with me at the loss of a job, that he's with me at the loss of a child, that he's with me in my brokenness, in the shadow of the valley of death, as David puts it. Do you see how the whole context of the Emmaus Road story, however, is the story of brokenness? It's the context of brokenness. It's all broken. That's why the two travelers are on the road to Emmaus in the first place. They're leaving. They're ditching. They're bailing out. The Emmaus Road story is a story of a couple of Jesus followers who get so disillusioned with Jesus that they bail out on the Christian community. They, they leave. They're out. Pain has gotten so bad. Disappointment has risen to the top of the list of experienced realities. Therefore, they're moving on. It is definitely not worked out the way they hoped that it would, and so they're done. But the Emmaus Road story is also the story of a God who's not done yet. God's not done with them. God's not done with the whole thing. This is the story of a God who is with them, who is joining them in their stories and even pursuing them in their brokenness, in their rebellion, in their misunderstanding of the bigger picture, in their completely self-centered and self-referential um, perception of pain and reality. Even though they are done with community, even though they're done hoping in Jesus, God's not done. Jesus joins them in their brokenness. That's the story. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And in my view, that's totally compelling. So there's a lot in this Emmaus Road story. And at the most basic level, this is a story about the God who joins you in your story of brokenness. 
Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up hearing about this story at all. My dad drank too much. He had no need for the church or for God. So we didn't talk about any of this stuff. But somehow I picked up a version of the the God story, and it went somewhere along the lines of this. You work your way to God, uh, and, and, and you kind of earn acceptance before God, and what's God doing? He's shaking his head. His, his arms are crossed. He's looking down his nose at you with a, a certain degree of frustration and disgust and maybe a little dose of pity as well. So when I started meeting people who knew Jesus, like really knew Jesus, and I started meeting people who were telling me that Jesus knew me and Jesus loved me, well, this, and, and then wanted to lead my life, this was a totally captivating message to me. A God who would change his pace to walk alongside me in my story of brokenness? I was totally enthralled by this message, so captivated. All right, with that as the backdrop, that's the major arc of this story. And I want to finally zoom in on one thought, one critical scene from this story. Because continually, whether we're just exploring the teachings of Jesus and the possibility of a relationship with Jesus, or we've been following Jesus with, uh, with our lives for our whole lives, we need to see this moment that opens the door for real soul change. This is why this story is the best story in the Bible, because it reveals so much of the arc of Christian experience. Experience, and it also reveals this critical moment of transformation, the moment that changes the game, the moment that has the potential to heal relationships, the potential to restore hope, the, moment, the, the potential to really bring clarity to our life. If you were to make a short film on the story of the road to Emmaus, you would basically need two sets. You need like a road set, because a lot of the story happens on a road, and then you would need a dinner table set. Because the big, mysterious, life-changing reveal happens at uh, a dinner table. But I want to shine a light on that very easy-to-miss moment between the two sets, between the two main scenes, this critical hinge point between the road and the table, because I'm convinced that this is the moment that we miss way too often. I miss this way too often, and I don't want to miss it anymore. And here's the moment. It's the moment they ask Jesus to stay. Stay with us. That's what unlocks the door. That's what opens this whole experience up to restoration and healing. That's what shifts us from sadness and brokenness to recognition of truth and all kinds of purpose and power. In other words, what, what happens on the road or on the journey or on everyday life, well, Jesus, uh, the, the disciples encounter Jesus in everyday life. Jesus is with them. He's speaking to them, but they don't understand stand. They don't even recognize that it's him. They're intrigued, they're encouraged, but they're not changed. Well, what happens at the meal? At the meal, they recognize that it's Jesus. They're transformed at the meal. Lasting change takes place at the meal. I think the reason it's relatively common for us to experience little bursts of inspiration, little moments of encouragement, but it's relatively rare for us to experience lasting spiritual transformation and change is because this critical moment of transition between the road and the table we miss. It's the hinge of the story. It's the most important time of the whole, but we miss it. 
And here's what happens between the two scenes. The disciples ask, they don't even know it's Jesus yet, but they ask this person to stay with them. There is an intentional choice for more of that. Jesus has offered a perspective on their pain that is so life-giving that it compels them. They cannot allow this to continue on. They ask for him to stay with them. In other words, having experienced Jesus on the real life journey, having experienced his conversation, his questions, his presence, having been disturbed by him, intrigued by him, inspired by him, they now press in for more of him. They don't just, in other words, wave goodbye to him. They urge Jesus to stay with them. They want more time with Jesus. I've read this story more than any story in the Bible. There was a season in 2003, 2004, when I read this story every day for nine months in a row. I could not get away from this story. This story was like a baby growing inside me. Uh, I could not get enough of it. I basically rented a camper and parked it in this story. I was talking to everybody about this story. People were like, yeah, we know the Emmaus Road story. I was captivated by it. I didn't fully even understand why in that Season. This was just pulling um, at my heart so intensely. And, and then this recently, this, this story was, it was part of the appointed Bible readings for the pattern that I used to read the Bible. Like this story came back up. I was super familiar with the story, but I hadn't read it for probably, I don't know, a while. And I got to this point of this hinge point in the story where the travelers urged Jesus to stay with them for dinner. And I thought, Nathan, do you even have time in this season of your life to invite Jesus to stay. Like if Jesus were to come along and walk alongside you and offer a perspective on your pain that was intriguing enough that you noticed it did something in you. Are you even willing though in this season of your life to come away from the road and to move toward the table in order to spend more time with Jesus? Even when you don't figure, you're not even really understanding exactly what it is that he's saying. You just know that something's happening. Is there even a capacity in your life at this stage to pull away from the road, get closer to the table? Or are you just so busy and so preoccupied that when the road forks, you just wave and say, hey, thanks for the talk. You know, thanks for the chat. I keep a journal. Um, I write things down constantly in, this, in, in these little journals. Meeting notes, ideas that I have, people I need to reach out to, comments that I hear, insights. Once in a while, I write down something in, in a journal that I think God might be saying to me. Like something is so clearly not from me, from so, that I, it's so interesting, it's so disturbing, so intriguing that I, that I write it down. And then sometimes, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but sometimes much later on, I'll be flipping through a journal and I'll come to a place where I think I wrote down something that I think maybe God was saying to me because it was so interesting and disturbing. And I'll realize with disappointment that after writing the thing down, I never really returned to it. I never leaned into it. I never went back and said, is there something more here for me? I never really came off the road. I never sat down at the table. I didn't lean in. I didn't ask Jesus to stay with me and talk to me more about that. And the reason is because I was rushing off to the next. Understand this, friends, that when, when those who are changed by Jesus... Those who are changed by Jesus are not those who just get a glimpse of Jesus on the road. 
our country is full of people who just get a glimpse of Jesus and it doesn't change anybody. Those who are changed by Jesus are those who come away from the road and ask Christ to come away from the road with them, to sit with them, invite him to dinner, in other words, schedule time away from the road at the table and listen for more of what Jesus wants to say. Let me end by teaching you a word. It's the critical word in this story, in my view. The word is parabiosomai. It's a Greek word. It's what Luke uses here to, to, to indicate what the disciples do to Jesus at this hinge point in the story. They parabiosomai Jesus. Sometimes it's translated that the, the word means to use force contrary to nature or right. This is not in my nature to do this. I certainly have no right to do this, but, but I am begging you to stay. Sometimes it's translated, they urged him strongly to stay. Sometimes it's translated, they begged him to stay. Other translations have it, they pressed him, they constrained him. There's an Aramaic translation that says, they held him by force, which is not to say that they constrained him against his will, but they were very intense. Let's put it this way. They're very intent on Jesus staying for dinner. We would say it like this. They would not take no for an answer. They're so resolute with, with, with their sense of desperation and compulsion to get more of what this man has offered to them in terms of his perspective and his presence. They will not take no for an answer. The word carries with it this, this image or this idea of literally grabbing somebody by the shirt and pulling them closer to where you are because you just need to have, it's not a sense of manipulation, but there's a sense of desperation here to use force contrary to nature or right. Stay with us, they said. They would, take, they would not take uh, no for an answer. So here's my point. Uh, West winds. The truth is that Jesus is with you in your story of brokenness. But he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to take you deep into the mystery of his love for you. And he wants to totally, holistically transform your life. And the critical point on that journey happens when you invite him to stay. When you invite him to spend more time with you. When you say, can we sit down together? When you take hold of Jesus, this fellow traveler on the journey who has offered a compelling perspective on your pain, and you say, Can, I need a little bit more than just a caffeine shot of inspiration. I need you to spell this out for me. I need you to reveal yourself to me in this moment of confusion and pain. Let's pull off of the road for a bit. Let's sit down at the table together. This is the best story. And, and, and this is a story of moving from the road to the table. And then, and this took me years to see, it's the story of moving from the road to the table and then back to the road again. Sometimes people refer to the road to Emmaus as a seven-mile journey. It's not. It's a 14-mile journey, which I referred to at the start because after the travelers recognize that it's Jesus at the table, they don't stay at the table. And this is critical for us to recognize. What happens? They get back up, and it's dark now, but they head back the seven miles they just walked 
back to the place of their pain, back to the place of their disillusionment, their disappointment, the tragedy of their past. They go back, no longer in sort of a disgusted, disappointed, I'm giving up hope, but now they go back as missionaries proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They go back to their community and they say, it is true, Jesus has risen from the dead. He joined us in our stories of brokenness, but he didn't leave us there. And now we've come back to our place of pain to preach healing and the good news that Jesus is alive and he's restoring all things to their level of wholeness that he envisioned from the very beginning. West Winds, may you believe that Jesus is with you in your stories of brokenness. May God grace you to sense his nearness and then to invite him to stay with you. And may God continually transform your pain into joy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.